Good afternoon, church. Thanks. That means so much to me. Um, hi, my name is Grant. I'm a volunteer here at DCC. Uh, congratulations on making it through whatever happened this afternoon. Um, I've lived here for many years and I've never seen something happen like that. Uh, apparently it was a Torcon 9, which I don't know what that means, but that's what I was told some about tornadoes. Uh, it sounds like a character from Transformers, um, but it's bad apparently. So anyway, I'm not Ben. Um, ben and Lindsay just had their child, uh, Benjamin Rhodes Kempfer. Um, they got back from the hospital yesterday afternoon, and so uh, Ben was not able to come here and teach this afternoon. And so uh, I'm teaching for you, so we'll see how it goes. Um, before we jump into what we're going to be talking about today, uh, just because I have a, a microphone, I have an opportunity to get to say anything I want without anyone stopping me. Um, our church offers a handful of things uh, that kind of help you mature as a Christian. And so we have uh, our community groups that meet throughout the week, and those community groups are you know, opportunities to get to fellowship with people who believe the same things you believe and get to spend time with uh, others. People say, like, doing life together. I can't stand that phrase, but that's kind of what it is. Um, we also have, you know, service things such as Hope, such as uh, Project Tallahassee, all these things that kind of where you can take your faith and actually do something with it, actually live the way you're supposed to. Uh, one of the things I'm really passionate about, it, well, one of the many things, is I really, really, really love the Bible. I really love uh, what it says. I really love trying to learn what God is telling us through it. And so uh, we do a Bible study, Sunday school, whatever you want to call it. Um, here in the church, we do it. Well, we did it at night last semester, but this semester we're changing it. We're going to do it at 8 a.m. in the morning. We're going to do it in the kids' room um, starting next week. We're going to go through the book of Hebrews this semester um, and kind of just until we finish it, uh, just going verse by verse trying to figure out what is it that God is telling us through this book. It's something that I really love doing, so um, feel free to come out at 8 a.m. I know it's super early, especially for you guys because of the 5 o'clock crowd, but um, Listen, it's kind of, a, kind of a cool situation you find yourselves in because uh, you kind of get a trial run here. If you like my teaching, then that's cool, and if you don't, then you never have to worry about it. So um, 8 a.m. next week, room with the little tiny green chairs. Uh, you can sit them if you want. They're pretty fun. We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, the book of, or this afternoon. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. We're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 12. Uh, before we get into it, we're in this series called Predestination. <laughs> That's the only laugh I've gotten on that joke all day. <laughs> My girl Devin looking out for me. Um, I continue telling that joke every time because I think it's funny and one other person does. <laughs> We're in a series called Destinations, in a series called Destinations. And, and when we talk about destinations, we talk about the word destinations, uh, one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, well, what destination are we talking about? If we're talking about trying to get to a destination, well, what is that destination that we are talking about? And you might think, well, we're at a church, we're, you know, there are Christians here, so we must be talking about heaven, we must be talking about getting to heaven. And the answer is no, that it's not the destination that we're going to be talking about this afternoon. The destination that we're talking about through this series and through what we're going to look at in the book of Romans is this idea of living a life that is glorifying to God, living a life that is fulfilling to our souls. You might ask, why does that matter? What does, why is that a destination that we're trying to get to? Well, if God created everything, right? He created the earth, he created the heavens, he created us, and he had a meaning uh, or a purpose intended for us, then we would want to 
live that way. If he has a purpose for us, then we want to live within that purpose. And so what we want to do is we want to find how do we live lives that are glorifying to God. Now, what we experience a lot of times um, as Christians is kind of seeing Christianity around us in this world. Uh, A lot of times we see people who say they believe in God, they say they're Christians, and yet a lot of times we look at their lives and we're like, I don't really see it. I don't don't really believe you. Uh, I think this is an example that happened to me recently. I was up in Nashville a few months ago uh, for my cousin's wedding, and I saw, um, I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan, just so you know. Uh, I love the Cards. that's all you need to know, yeah. Uh, so I, I love the Cardinals, and the, one of the things is the Cardinals don't like Cubs. Like, we're rivals, and the Cubs just won a World Series. And so all the Cardinals fans that I know are just like, well, it sucks, like, blah, 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 blah. And we're all mad, and we're all angry, and um, so on and so forth. And so when I was in Nashville, I saw this, this guy with a Cubs shirt on, and so I go up to him, and I talk to him, and, you know, just trying to be a good sport. I'm like, hey, man, congratulations on the win. You know, just like very excited to talk to this winner. Um, and he goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not a Cubs fan. I'm actually a Cardinals fan as well. I was like, I don't think so, brother. <laughs> but that's what we experience so often is we see people who are saying one thing and yet they look so drastically different. We say, well, maybe, but I don't know. It just doesn't appear that way. And so often we see people who say they are Christians, who say they believe in God, and yet they aren't living lives that are glorifying to God. And maybe that's even ourselves, where we say, man, we say one thing, and yet we live in another way. But when we talk about destinations, what we have to inevitably ask ourselves is, well, if the destination is to live a life that's glorifying to God, to live a life that is fulfilling, well, then how do we get there? If you are my age or younger, which I assume all of you are around there, or most of you are at least, um, we have very little experience with maps. We don't use maps very often. Um, when you think of maps, like the first thing you might think of is Dora the Explorer. That's how little we use maps. We just, use, we just say, Siri, get me where I need to go. And then Siri you know, takes you to the wrong place and you have bad luck with technology. We're going to talk about how do we get to this life that is glorifying to God. Ben says about this, he says, uh, beliefs inform decisions that determine direction. Beliefs inform decisions that determine direction. If you're like me, you hear that, and it's like, man, that's a bunch of words that doesn't mean anything. Like, what the heck is that even talking about? The idea is, where you are going is determined by what you do, and what you do is determined by what you believe. Where you're going is determined by what you do, what you do is determined by what you believe. Uh, kind of, to, to look at this as an example, uh, I, there's this kid that I went to high school with, uh, this is like maybe sophomore, junior year, and he wanted to be an anesthesiologist. And he wanted to because he was like, oh, get this, guys, uh, it's really easy, you don't do anything, and you get paid a ton. And I was like, hey, man, that's a doctor, like, I don't know if that's true, but like, you know, you do you, man. And uh, the problem was, was that he made a D in biology. I was like, hey, you're not going to make it very far, man, you're not going to get there. And the reality is uh, what was happening to him was that he had this destination he wanted to get to, but he didn't believe that it was worth getting to. He didn't think that the steps, you know, hard work, he didn't believe in the hard work that it would take to get there, the steps necessary to get there. And so he would never get to that point. I mean, maybe he will, who knows, still, jury's still out on that one, but he's not any closer, that's for sure. You may think even in, in, in where you are sitting right now, in, in your chair, you think, 
you know, how did you get here, right? Some super existential question. Well, you probably woke up this morning, you're like, I should go to church at some point, and so, you know, you're like, not the early ones, man, no way. Um, when we go to the five o'clock, I don't have time for this in the morning, it's raining, it's, life's tough. Uh, and so, you thought, I should go to church, and so you got in your car, and you drove here, and if you were like me, there's like power cables over the ground, and you just keep turning around and going somewhere else, trying to find your way to here. Uh, but you believed it was worth getting to church, and so you got here. And that's how destinations work. We can only get to the destination if we believe getting to the destination is worth it. We only believe if, if it's worth getting to if we think it is worth getting to. And so if we talk about a life glorifying to God, a life that is fulfilling, we will only be able to get to that point if we truly believe that glorifying God is right and if that is really fulfilling to us. Because if we don't believe that, then we're not going to do it. If we don't believe that, we're not going to put in the work to get there. We're not going to take the steps to get to that destination. And so what we're going to look at this afternoon is we want to look at the life of Paul. Not the life of Paul, just the thing that he wrote. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, we want to look at something that Paul wrote. Kind of these directions, this guide to how to live this life that's glorifying to God and why we should live this life that's glorifying to God. So it's going to be in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, if you've ever read stuff by Paul before, you might think, like, man, that guy uses these run-on sentences. It's, like, always confusing. It's, like, he goes, yada, 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 like, one thing after another. And it's, it's, like, what's going on here? There's a million phrases that he uses in just these two verses. Well, here's what's kind of going on. This is how we're going to have to look at it this afternoon. Is you imagine Paul writes a lot of letters throughout his life. We have 13 in the New Testament. Um, surely he wrote many more outside of just what we have but Paul is writing these letters, and, and he's you know, spending a lot of his time writing to all these people throughout the entire world. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to write as much information as possible in as little space as possible. Because he's, you know, he's not writing volumes of books and sending out a new book every week. He doesn't have time to do that. And so he's trying to just get these churches to understand these concepts through writing these small phrases. And, and so they, they take these phrases, and they break them down, and they think about what they mean, and they look at what the Old Testament would say about it. And so this is kind of how they understand it. So that's why it seems like there's so much going on in this little tiny section. And that's why we're going to have to break it down kind of word by word to see what is it that Paul is trying to tell us. So we start in verse 1, and he says, Therefore, and this is a cheesy little thing I had to learn when uh, I was getting my degree in theology and in biblical studies, um, a little trick for you guys. Whenever you see the word therefore, you must always ask, What's it there for? Right? So dumb, but you will never forget it. Uh, so we'll try it here. Every time you see the word therefore, you must ask. All right. You guys are great. You guys are killing it. Hang in there. We'll get through this eventually. Uh, so the word therefore. The word therefore is a transition word. And so it takes, this, uh, it takes us from one thought to another. Kind of uh, an example to think of is uh, this. My car has not had air conditioning for two years. Uh, it's a very expensive fix, and so instead of paying to get it fixed, I just melt in the summers. Uh, I just, 
risk my life getting two places. Um, and so because of that, because the, car, the AC in my car has been broken, uh, pretty much every time you've ever seen me, if you've seen me before, I have been super sweaty. Like I'm sweating right now. Um, even though it's January, it's still, like it was nice this morning because it's raining and so the sun doesn't get down on you. But uh, on my way here, I was sweating in my car because we live in Florida because it's hot. And so if I say to you, that, hey, every time you see me in, in all of my life, I'm always sweaty, you would think, like, oh, that's kind of gross. But if I said, my car's AC doesn't work, and therefore, every time you see me, I'm sweaty, you're like, okay, still gross, but that makes sense, right? At least there's, like, at least there's something there that makes sense. And so that's kind of what, no, that's not what Paul's doing, but Paul's doing something similar with the word. In the idea of Romans is this argument, and so we've got to look at what happens before this argument, what happens after this argument to understand what he is saying. And so Romans, uh, just kind of to briefly say what Romans is about, uh, in Romans 1, chapter 5, Paul writes that uh, this is to bring about the obedience of faith. That he's writing this letter to a bunch of people saying, the reason that I'm writing this to you is so that your faith turns into obedience. That faith in and of itself must have obedience with it. And so here is the reason why, right? Because no one wants to just be obedient. That's not like when your parents tell you to clean your room, you're not just like, all right, mom and dad. You know, no one just like is willingly obedient. People are mostly rebellious. And so he's saying, well, the purpose of me writing this is to bring about the obedience of faith, is to make an argument for you as to why you should be obedient to God. And he starts, this is, we call this the Romans road. Uh, it's just kind of this really generalization of what Romans 1 through 11 is about. Uh, it, he kind of starts in Romans 3.23 when he says, For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. He goes on in 6.23 to say, uh, Those wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 5.8 he says, uh, But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then he kind of finishes up this argument in Romans 10.9 when he says, so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that, he raised, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So his whole argument here for, through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is to say, you were sinful, you were headed toward death, but God loved you so much that he saved you, so if you just believe in him, you will be saved. And it's as simple as that. So that's Romans 1 through 11 is this idea of, okay, well, what is salvation? How do we get to salvation? And then what's going to happen for the next five chapters of the book of Romans is it's going to talk about how do we be obedient practically. And so he's just going to talk about really practical stuff, like make sure you're doing this, make sure you're not doing this, kind of look out for these things. So what we're looking at here right after the end of Romans 11 is we're looking at the transition from this kind of theoretical into the practical. And so he's going to talk about why are we obedient? Why are we supposed to be obedient? So he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren. <laughs> Brethren's not a word we use very often. I always think it's funny to call people, I call people brothers sometimes. Uh, like, just, oh, what's up, brother? Brethren is funnier, though, because it's like it's so absurd. Um, he's saying, I urge you. This is an urgent matter. This is something that Paul thinks is very serious. You know, he doesn't usually write words like this, so we can't take this lightly. He's saying, I urge you, brethren. And this is brothers and sisters. Uh, if you don't like that your Bible just does the masculine, then you can get an NRSV, and it will have the feminine as well. 
case you guys are interested. Um, it's just a little bit of trivia that I probably should have told you. Um, it says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. And this is just an interesting thing that he's appealing to the mercy of God. Now, if we were to kind of define mercy, there's a lot of different ways to define mercy, but um, kind of one of the more popular ways within the Christian tradition is uh, to call it unmerited compassion, that the compassion that God has for us that we don't deserve, we didn't earn, we actually kind of earned and deserve the opposite of his mercy, and yet he has given us his mercy. So Paul's saying, by the mercies of God. And, and what this means it, practically is what he's about to go into when he's talking about this, this life of obedience. He's saying it's not something that we are capable of doing in and of ourselves, that we need the mercy of God. It's by the mercy of God that we can do this. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, that we kind of lose out on what's going on here. We don't really understand culturally necessarily the way that they would understand the people he's writing to are not necessarily just Jewish, but they would at least understand the Jewish tradition, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. Jesus came from the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition has historically and traditionally for thousands of years understood and practiced that they must sacrifice animals. That the way that they approach God, that the way they have forgiveness of sins is through sacrificing and killing unblemished animals. And that's how it's always been. But what happened here, and this is kind of where Paul flips the script, is all of a sudden, the perfect sacrifice came. The perfect sacrifice came through Christ, and he came and he died in a way that, you know, the animals could never do. He did it, and he finally did it in in a way that was so absolute that now, there now no longer needs to be the sacrifice of animals. There now no longer needs to be this death that is satisfied. And so what he's saying is, instead of sacrificing animals, instead of sacrificing to the point of death, now you yourselves are the sacrifices. You yourselves are the sacrifices, and you don't have to sacrifice yourself to death. You can be a living sacrifice. So now no longer do you need death to approach God, but because of what God has already done and you are already in his presence, now you live for God. That what God has done through Christ is so countercultural because it's now no longer this economy of death. Now all of a sudden, it's about life. And so he's saying, present yourselves as living sacrifices because there is no need for death anymore because Christ paid that death finally and fully. But not only are we to be living sacrifices, but we're also to be holy sacrifices. That we are called to holiness. We are called to obedience. He's saying, yeah, you now no longer need to live by this standard or this economy of death. You can now live in life. Present yourselves as living and holy sacrifices. And he's hitting on a point here that we misunderstand so often. And it's It's this point that truly causes us to stray in our faith into kind of areas of legalism or, you know, getting weird in the ways we think about things. But what he's saying is we are not to be obedient to God out of obligation. We are to be obedient to God out of adoration. That it's not that we keep the commandments that God has given us because we feel obligated to, because we feel like we ought to, because we know that we should, because it's the moral right thing to do. We don't do it because we are obligated to do it. We do it because we admire Christ who freely gave himself for us. 
It's not out of obligation, it's out of adoration. When I was in high school, I had to do this project on uh, William Sherman, you, you know, uh, Union leader in the Civil War, Sherman's March to the Sea. Um, though that's all the information I know about him. That's everything that I remember from doing that. Is those two things. Just, not even what they were, just that they happened. Um, and by saying I had to do a project on him, I mean, my friend had to do a project. We were, you know, team project or a group project. Uh, my friend did the project, and I just cut out pictures and glued them to a poster board. Um, and we had to present on him, and I truly, I mean, I learned as much as I needed to know about him to get an A, and that was it. And we didn't even get an A. Um, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> nice. Crowd participation. I like it. Um, I learned about William Sherman out of obligation. I had to. It was required for school. Uh, now, some of you may know, if you, if you know me well enough, you may know this. Um, I have this irrational... I don't want to call it a crush, but it is a crush. This irrational crush on a woman by the name of Jackie Kennedy. Um, don't laugh at that. It's terrible, but it's true. Um, she was just so sweet. Um, was so sweet, I'm sorry. The late Jackie Kennedy. Uh, don't laugh at that. That's not funny. Because of whatever this shameful th- obsession is, because of it, I have read multiple books on her. I've read uh, books that are transcripts of interviews that she's given. I've read about John F. Kennedy. I've, I've just really read almost everything you can read about it. Um, I say that to say adoration is much more powerful than obligation. And it's a really silly example because it's like, that's weird and it's creepy and like hope, hopefully you still respect me after that, but... Adoration is much more powerful than obligation. And what Paul is doing here is he's not appealing to your obligation. He's not saying, you should do this, you're supposed to do this. Why aren't you doing this, Romans? He's saying, no, you should want to present yourselves as these living and holy sacrifices to God because of all that God has done for us and how freely he has given it to us. He says, present yourselves as holy and living sacrifices. He says, he goes on to say, acceptable to God, acceptable to God. That's one of those things that you just sometimes read over and you don't think like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And and you stop and you say, acceptable to God, holy cow. Wait, I can be accepted by God? That the God of the universe can accept me? And what you have to keep in mind here is is he's not talking about salvation, right? Salvation was chapters 1 through 11. that, That was the part of salvation. This is after salvation, that you can be acceptable to God, not just that God would save you, that God would go to such an extreme to bring you out of death and into salvation, but that God would accept you after that. That we could walk with God, that we could have relationship with God, that even after our salvation experience, we can still be in relationship with God where, you know, he cares about us, he cares about where we are, he cares about what we're doing. We can be acceptable to God. And beyond that, it's that this is something that God desires, that he desires to accept us. I mean, that's just, that's just a totally mind-blowing concept. In fact, Paul says, uh, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is your spiritual service of worship. What he's saying here is, 
in fact, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is your spiritual service of worship. It's the way that things were intended to be. And in fact, this is real, true worship. We sit in here in this room and we, and we worship God. And the idea of worship is, is we're proclaiming our love for God. And it's not just that it happens in here, but it's that it goes out into our lives. This is our spiritual service of worship, to present ourselves as holy and living sacrifices acceptable to God. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, And do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. And this is it's kind of like a, a little secret that maybe you might not know. Um, Satan is not able to take away your faith. You could argue that you could walk away from your faith depending on which camp of theology you, you sit in. Um, but Satan certainly can't take your faith from you. It's not his for the taking. You know, God freely gave it. It's not, it's not of Satan's business. But what Satan can do is he can make you miserable. He can't take your faith away, but he can make you miserable, and he can make you miserable by distracting you from the things that you adore. He can make you miserable by distracting you from the God who really loves you. And, and I think we all, to a certain degree, have experienced this, right? Like, like you have that moment with, well, if you've had that moment with God, and you just feel this joy, and then all of a sudden you are distracted by the pleasures of this world. And although you, that you know that the true pleasure is being found in Christ, yet you seek the pleasures of this world. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, don't be conformed to this world. But he says instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind, he's talking about the Holy Spirit changing the way we see things, you know, revealing so we can see with our eyes, right? I once was blind, but now I see. It's I once saw only the things around me, but now I see that God is greater than the things around me. So it's not to be conformed or not to be changed by the things around us, but instead to be changed by he who found us says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And our mind is renewed by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, so that you may prove what the will of God is. And this is an interesting thing. He's saying that we shouldn't be conformed to this world. We should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we do this so that we can understand what the will of God is. And this will of God that he's talking about, he's talking about the same thing as, as in verse 1, this presenting ourselves as living in holy sacrifices. It's being obedient to Christ. It's doing what he said. It's living lives that are glorifying to God. And he's saying you do this so that you can understand what the will of God is. So it's not just this, you know, how do I glorify God? But it's in the individual parts of my life. Well, what should I do now that is glorifying? glorifying to God? What do I do in this moment that brings glory to God? How do I obey him in this instance? That the Spirit will guide us to obedience in our worship and in our adoration of him. So you may prove to know what the will of God is. He says, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And he's using three different words there, and they have three very different meanings. He's um, not just saying the same point with three different words. Uh, so we'll kind of break them down one at a time. We're going to spend a, a good bit of time on the word good. That which is good. And that's, a, that's a profound statement, and 
we miss out on what he's saying here um, because we have a language barrier. So we use the word good uh, in a much different way than they would use the word good. Because in our language, we have the word good, but there's kind of something better than good, and it's great, you know? Like the Oakland Raiders are good, they're not great, right? That's kind of like the way we use the word good, and so we're like, oh, it's good, but like the will of God could be great, you know? And that's not what he's saying here. He's, saying, he's using the word good in the way that uh, when God created the heavens and the earth, he looked at it and he said, that is good. The word good here is, is more kind of translated as, it's, it's the way it was intended to be. It's the way that uh, God had desired for it to be. That it was fulfilled in this way. And so he says the will of God is good. He's saying that this obedience to Christ is good. Now then, let me, let me explain that. Imagine you are facing temptation. You have two options, right? You have uh, sin and you have obedience. You're looking at temptation in the eye and you can sin or you can be obedient. Those are your two options. And you look at sin and sin is, I mean, it seems good. It seems fulfilling. That's why we sin is because it's enjoyable. It's because, it, you know, we think it'll bring us pleasure. It seems like something that's good. And then over here you have obedience and, and you say, okay, well, I know obedience is good. I know like theoretically in, in the spiritual realm that obedience is good and that obedience is fulfilling. And yet it might not feel good or fulfilling, right? That's, that's why we choose one over the other. We say, okay, well, this one feels right, even though I know it's wrong. And this one feels wrong, even though I know it's right. And that's kind of the situation that we find ourselves in. But what he's saying here is he's saying, no, it's not only that, you know, one is right and one is wrong and whatever, but he's saying that this one is good. That, that obedience is good. And obedience isn't just good in like it's the right thing to do and you should do it. But obedience ultimately is fulfilling. It is as it was intended to be. It was as its purpose was. Meaning that when God created us, knowing what is good for us and what is best for us and what will bring us the most joy and bring us the most pleasure, he says, you do these things, you be obedient to me because these things are where your joy will be found. These things are where pleasure is to be found. And we can look at that, you know, that might seem like, okay, that sounds good, and yet I, I still feel like sin is, feels better than being obedient. But we look in, in, in real-life examples, right? There's a, there's, I'm sure you've at least heard about this study. You can look it up. Uh, Washington Post, I think, is the most um, famous person to publish it. But there are a handful of studies that are similar to this, where if you, uh, or not if you, but people who have, you know, kind of abstained from sexual immorality previous to their marriage have happier marriages, it's empirical data. You can look at it. It's science. It's like there are numbers and figures and actual people who are studies of this. That the, the design that God had intended actually brings more joy and pleasure. You think of, I have a buddy who uh, is the, you know, the most forgiving, kind person I've ever met. And he is always, you know, he's always so happy and so excited. And me, you know, being bitter and angry about everything all the time, I'm like, why are you so happy, you know? It's because God has intended for these things to be this way because these things are right and these things are good and these things bring pleasure. That God desires what is best for us. But, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
because it doesn't always feel that way, right? That's the problem with the sin and with the obedience is sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Here's the deal. Obedience doesn't necessarily mean that there will be joy in the journey. It means that there will be joy in the destination. Obedience does not always mean that there will be joy in the journey, but it means that there will be joy in the destination. Case in point. Jesus goes into the wilderness, into the desert, and he is tempted by Satan, right? And he goes 40 days before this without eating anything. And so, like, if I were in that situation, I'd be so hangry. I'd be just like, oh, I'll do whatever, I don't care. But no, Jesus does this, and he, and he goes, and he's tempted by Satan. And he chooses obedience. And so we think in ourselves, okay, well, if God desires what's best for you, if he desires joy, if he desires pleasure, then, like, things worked out for him, right? No. In fact, he chose obedience, he chose obedience, he chose obedience to the point in where the obedience led him to a death on the cross. His obedience of saying, I am the son of God, I have come to forgive you of your sins. His obedience, or he was obedient to the point in which he was hung on a cross publicly to be crucified. And in fact, you, you put yourself in the situation of the disciples, right? The disciples who have followed Jesus for three years and they left their friends and they left their cities and they left their jobs and they left everything they knew to follow and be obedient to Christ. And for three years, they were obedient to what he was teaching, to what he was saying. They were trying to learn. They were trying to memorize the, the, the statements that he was making. They were writing this stuff down. They were sharing it with people that they saw. They were performing miracles. They were, you know, talking to strangers about who this Christ was and all these things. And then all of a sudden, they look and this person that they've been obedient to for years is dead and they're hopeless and they regret everything and they say man our obedience was worthless man nothing matters nothing that we have ever done in the past three years resulted in anything because that is the person we were obedient to and that person is now dead but three days later jesus would rise from the dead, and he would go to those disciples, and, and he would show him his wounds in his hands and his feet that said, look at my obedience. My obedience unto death has brought you salvation. My obedience unto death has overcome sin. My obedience unto death has allowed for the perfect sacrifice. And what happened is that this terrible, horrific display of obedience that we saw on the cross would one day come to be known as Good Friday. You see, things don't always seem good at the time. Things don't always seem good at the time. There's not always joy in the journey, but we believe that the destination is worth it. That obedience at times is difficult, and it doesn't seem good, and it doesn't seem fulfilling, but we know that God has intended it this way. And although it might not feel good now, we know the destination is good. And if you're in here and you're saying, man, like that's cool, because that's a great thought. Um, I just know myself, and I can't do that. Like, I can't be obedient like that. Maybe I don't, I don't want to be. I just don't care about Christ in that way. That's just not something that I'm capable of doing. 
Well, the good news is, is that Jesus already knew that, <laughs> right? Christ knew that we would fail. Christ knew that we were only capable of failure. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, 8 that he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. Knowing that it was not, you know, he's not going to wait for us to finally be like, okay, you're right, we'll be obedient to you. He's like, no, I have to send my son before that because it's the only way that this can get done. He knew that we would fail. He knew that we will continue to fail, and yet he still cares for us. John wrote in 1 John four nineteen. He says that we love him because he first loved us. That our love, our adoration for Christ is out of a response for the adoration that he has for us. And so you say, I can't do it, I'm not able, I'm not able to be obedient, I'm not able to follow God. Yes, that is true, but don't, you know, don't try harder, don't work more at it, but be transformed by the love of Christ. Don't be conformed to the, the things of this world, but be transformed by that love that sent his son to die for you. You know, whenever we talk about stuff like this, um, it sometimes kind of comes off as like a little self-helpy, like, oh, you just need to be a better person, you just need to be a, be a more moral person, you need to do what is good because, you know, you need to be obedient because it is good. But here's what we know about what God has done. God did not come into this world to make bad people good people. He came into this world to make dead people alive. So this isn't about being a better person. This isn't about being more obedient. This is about adoring Christ. This is about looking to what he has done and responding to it, presenting our bodies as living and holy sacrifices that are acceptable to God because this is what he wants. It's to not be conformed to the things of this world, but it's to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And listen, we, you know, if you, if you make it to that destination, if you are living that life that is glorifying to God, we still don't necessarily, you know, we still have sin in your life. It's not that all of a sudden you experience that perfection that he's talking about there. But it's that you begin to partake in the perfection of God. Right? It's not until we're in heaven that we will fully understand God's perfection. But although we're not in heaven yet, we can begin to experience that. Let's pray.